0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our
0: podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Maps we have known
0: and loved. The U.S. election
1: season. Comedy in Cthulhu. And my time machine intervention, Against Prohibition.
0: before we start this week, we'd like to warn you that near the end of the episode, uh, actually sort of near the second half of the episode, sound problems start to creep in. A skeptical soul might say that Ken was having mic placement issues, but obviously these are Ken's enemies in the time stream giving off uh, temporal fluctuations that temporarily distort the recording. So if you want to continue on for the sterling content despite a bit of rustling, uh, please feel free to do so. If you want to turn off the podcast partway through, We're not monitoring you, we swear.
1: But know that you are um, uh, enabling the post-mortem machinations of Woodrow Wilson by doing so.
0: Indeed, yes. So either you're with Wilson or you're with us. That's all we're saying. Also, we'd like to give a big thanks to the guys and gals at RPG Geek uh, to thank them for nominating our still young and mewling infant of a podcast uh, for their best podcast category in the Golden Geek Awards.
1: Yeah, and also, obviously, congratulate all of our uh, fine, uh, clean-limbed and much stronger and bigger rivals. So, uh, good good luck to them, and uh, one hopes that we will be able to defeat them in proper Herculean fashion, if it comes to that.
0: Indeed, yeah. So, thanks a lot, guys.
1: Okay, uh, it's time for a new hut here on uh, the podcast. Uh, this hut was erected uh, by request of our charming sponsor, Pro Fantasy Software, which I think emphasizes the kind of service that Ken and Robin talk about stuff, uh, emphasize when it comes to, uh, keeping our sponsors, uh, sponsorified. We will erect huts across the fruited plain if our sponsors so require it. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, huts are Us was actually one of the, uh, rejected titles for this podcast.
0: Uh, unfortunately, that was taken by a Survivalist Podcast, so we had to go with Ken and Rob and talk about stuff. Right, which is a great podcast. You should go, you guys should check
1: it out. Um, sadly, it only broadcasts on the ELF signal that the nuclear submarines listen to. So
0: yes, and weirdly, even though it's in a tin bunker, uh, the sound quality is uh,
1: quite superb. Yeah, no, it's it's really good. They've 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 knocked that one out of the park. This hut, however, is the cartography hut uh, erected, as I say, at the request of Pro Fantasy Software, our beloved sponsor, who makes software for role-playing games, not just fantasy software, but you know how names are. Uh, So in our first installment, our inaugural installment of Cartography Hut, as we look around at its, uh, you know, beautiful, sleek design and excellent uh, cartographic features, uh, we'll talk about maps and diagrams that we have known and loved. So Robin, is there a map or diagram that you have known and loved?
0: Well, when I think of a map that I love, of course, one's thought goes back to one's nostalgic beginnings with gaming. So basically, you can date yourself as a gamer by what sort of map you envision when you think nostalgically about maps. And of course, for me, that would be the uh, blue, simple, crude maps in the early uh, AD&D modules, which... I think back on as reflecting my youth and reflecting a map obsession that I'm not sure exists in its current state now in gaming. I'm not sure how many new groups of 13 to 14 year olds, when they first sit down to play D&D, elaborately map out every graph or hex square of a wilderness the way that we were able to force our players to do back in the day. But that's what I think about when I think about a map. And, of course, over the years, the presentation of maps has become ever more beautiful and graphic and lovely. Uh, And I wonder sometimes if that takes away a degree of imagination where the abstract maps of the early days, you would have to envision what they'd looked like, and that would create a visual sense in your head. And now I wonder if... sometimes the more beautiful the map, the less imaginative work you have to do engaging with
1: it. Well, I think that there's certainly a possibility that that's true, but I think that also beautiful maps like other beautiful art help engage the imagination in other ways. Uh, You wouldn't say that we all preferred an unillustrated role-playing game to a role-playing game that's beautifully illustrated because the illustrations as we've talked about on this very show sort of help capture the nature of the setting in a way that you can't Necessarily explain in words, but I think that the other great advantage of the sort of primitive era of mapping is that it lowered any sort of imaginative bar between you, the the DM, and uh, the professionals there at TSR because their maps actually didn't look that good, and so you, the fact that your maps also didn't look that good was really more of a, a sort of a, a point of pride, you could say my maps are just as good as these professional maps because they're on this identical graph paper with the identical cartographic conventions. And so there was a lower, like, I think a lower sensed bar to entry on those maps than there might be with the really, really sweet-looking maps that you get uh, nowadays, like in the 4E uh, encounters where all all these beautiful uh, three-dimensional graphics and whatnot. But on the other hand, you know, today's crop of gamers have been playing Uh, you know, dungeon games on uh, the computer, and they've been going uh, to Skyrim and other magical lands. And so maybe they would turn up their noses uh, at our primitive ways, just as they laugh themselves silly if they stumble upon a picture of the Walkman on the internet and ask their parents what that was.
0: And certainly the map, the the big overland map, rather than encounter map, is a trope of the wider fantasy genre and especially the epic fantasy genre introduced by Tolkien, where the map is certainly a route to imaginative engagement with the world. And there's the fact that you're opening up a new book and there's a big map in it of whatever world it is promises a degree of excitement and engagement. And the, big overland map certainly invites you to imagine going to places. It's something that you can use as the premise for a sandboxy fantasy game where you just unfurl a big poster map and say, hey, where do you want to go? Where do you want to be? And that certainly not only conjures the whole series of aesthetic tropes that we associate with the genre, but encourages you to imagine this world as having a reality beyond what it is that you're imagining at any given time while you're playing the game.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, that feeds into the same sort of joy that I at least got as a kid when I would open, you know, actual atlases and, and you know, poke around in Africa or or Southeast Asia or Europe or somewhere that I was not and sort of wonder what was going on in there, follow the rivers along with your fingers, Uh, you know, look at historical maps to find out where the Roman Empire had been, things like that. That I think it's that same sort of transporting yourself to the landscape and the imagination that maps have been doing, well, pretty much you know since they became a uh, an artifact of consumer culture in the 17th century, as opposed to you know surely utilitarian uh, uh, purposes uh, that they were for most of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Um, I obviously grew up with on the D and D graph paper maps like you're talking about and the hex maps for the for the uh, wilderness encounters, and I still love those quite a bit. I've actually just uh, made one for the uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess adventure that I'm writing right now. But the maps, I think, that worked best for me and that have most informed my later, both my play and my design, were the maps that I think Yurik Chodek did back in the very first edition of Call of Cthulhu, which were all of those uh, terrifically abstracted uh, actual archaeological dig sites That he laid out uh, with um, uh, they had I don't know what what all they had nan metal probably they had a I know that they had one of the uh, pyramids they had something in uh, the Middle East uh, the city of the sun in Teotihuacan they just lots and lots of actual archaeological. you know, uh, plats and they obviously aren't as complex as real ones, but they were at a perfect level of abstraction so that you could imagine putting the ghoul down there in that little burrow or the the temple to near Othotep is over here in this little corner of Angkor Wat or whatever it is. And I, I know obviously that that inspired my, uh, Call of Cthulhu play. And I went and then it inspired my Dungeons and Dragons play. I had just gone to New Mexico to visit my family and got a book that had maps of uh, the Kivas built by the Anasazi uh, back before the um, uh, Navajo came in. And I used those Kivas as the places that the Blue Dragons hung out in my D&D campaign for, for quite some time. And I think that just moving forward into that, you know, you start finding National Geographic. will have a map of a Tibetan monastery. And so that becomes the headquarters for about 8 million things. And that goes all the way down to, you know, in in many cases, I'll be running... Uh, unknown armies games out of, uh, you know, uh, books with archaeological, uh, maps in them. Or in, uh, my recent, uh, Nice Black Agents playtest was always run, uh, with the Google Maps. You pull up the city that the guys are having the adventure in and start running around on the streets of that. Uh, so I, I think now that sort of Yurek Chodek pointed me towards using actual maps of actual Earth as not just sort of inspiration for what should a map look like but as as a play space and that uh, i think has been you know sort of a hallmark not just of my play but also obviously of my design ever since
0: the best use i ever got out of a role-playing map was not in a gaming context at all and this was the fold-out map in the first boxed version of call of cthulhu and in my first year of university it was the then practice of my university residence, and may be still, to assign roommates to first-year students. So if you were a second-year student, you got a single room in the dorm. But if you were a first-year student, you got stuck having to live in this one large room with some other person, who in my case I had not met before, and soon discovered that I did not much care for. And uh, this fellow, he was, shall we say, a bit of a drip. And we were even better off during the first half of the term when uh, I was just sort of giving him the silent treatment to, unfortunately, I showed some empathy for him later. And then he started pouring out all of the secrets of his life and so forth. And that was even worse. (laughs) So I had to learn how to keep this dude in line. And as he was confessing various things to me, he confessed that he, among his various paralyzing fears, uh, was a paralyzing fear of the ocean and because of that he was also terrified of world maps because world maps have a lot of ocean in them they they do and have that yes and of course the world map that comes in the call of cthulhu box not only has a lot of ocean it emphasizes the ocean with tentacles all over the edges and so at one particular moment when Colin, uh, this fellow confessed this i pulled out the map and showed it to him, and he recoiled in horror. And I then warned him that if he got out of line again, that I would tape the map to the window of our room so that when he got up in the morning, he would pull the curtains aside and see that map unexpectedly first thing in the morning. And that was a threat that I had to hold over him multiple times, but it worked extremely well. And and as such, that is the most efficacious game supplement that I've
1: ever owned. So what, uh, so what you're saying is that that map... Uh... Basically, sort of created your gming style, then
0: my desire to punish that particular roommate is certainly larger than my desire to punish any subsequent player, but it does it certainly is an
1: object lesson in Call of Cthulhu Keepering I guess it is yes that if if the players don 't behave, there will be a map taped to the window and they won 't like it indeed, yes now,
0: of course, the uh, converse of that in is in that gaming uh, a map is also also a reward that uh, in. Not only in Call of Cthulhu, but in other games, it's always fun to receive a map or a handout or something. And so getting a handout with a map on it is both a reward for having earned a success in the storyline and something that promises future developments as you go out and interact with the mysteries of that map. So in narrative terms, a map is a question mark, especially a handout map, which creates suspense, which you then go and relieve by going and exploring whatever it is depicted on the map.
1: Yeah, the map is so It's simultaneously it's exposition without delivering uh, thousands of words of narrative and it is also uh, sort of a, a promise of collaboration in engineering the game that uh, because you have obeyed uh, my will, we will not take the map to the window, but we will instead pour over it together as rough equals and you can say, we're going to hide here on this corner and in a way, structurally, you're just like the DM saying, right behind this corner, I'm going to put the Ogre Mage, or whatever it happens to be. And I, I think that, that 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 leads to um, sort of a, a generally positive degree of empowerment over the setting, that you have a sense that not only are you a guy who's sort of uh screwing around with an elf, but you are actually capable of understanding that world on some uh, non-verbal level, which is obviously what anyone in a given world would be able to do. And the notion that, uh, that, that we get sort of the reward of, of 19th century cartographic insights in our medieval fantasy is, uh, I guess it's one of the many things that makes Dungeons and Dragons so wonderfully special and not, uh, and not just a load of, of, of medieval reenactment or, or whatnot. That it, that it adds, I think, to that very special sense of the world that that engagement, uh, with the world is possible. Uh, both for the player and for the character.
0: Yeah, it's certainly anachronistic for any character in an ancient or medieval world to have access to an accurate world map, but the value that you get for providing that to people and engaging their imagination far outweighs the uh, historical niggling one might engage in.
1: Although I did run a uh, Ars Magica game uh, that was set in an alternate history where uh, the Viking uh, and Irish uh, expeditions to the West had uh, kept going and founded permanent colonies in the New World, and so therefore they were followed up by Norman knights after succession battle in, in England. And so there was a, a lovely medieval duchy there on Long Island, and the whole New World to explore, and I had a great deal of fun drawing a uh, map of the American East Coast in the style of a medieval cartographic uh, document, and which gave the players both the a general sense of, of the lay of the land, but also let them know how little their characters knew about the country, because obviously my players knew what the East coast looks like, but they could look at that map and see that it was all horribly wrong. And that I think sort of was the inverse of what I talked about of um, it's, it's more of a, a frisson of unknowing as opposed to a, a thrill of knowing.
0: And another thing that maps supply is they supply a parallel solitaire activity that keeps you engaged with your world and with role-playing game when your game is not in session. If you love to create maps uh, using, for example, uh, Pro Fantasy's uh, amazing software that require uh, you know, you can, the maps that I create using the program, which is my go-to program for mapping and diagrams are, are quite crude, but certainly way better than they could ever be if I was trying to do them by hand and the ability to... It's a CAD program, so you can move objects around and edit them, and it's much, much easier than doing something in freehand and and then scanning it in and trying to mess with it in Photoshop. But there are people who really put in the time to create incredibly gorgeous maps with ProFantasy, and certainly there are other people using other programs or even doing it by hand, and the process of creating those maps however you do it is akin to painting minis or creating backstories for your characters. It's something that you can do on your own to continue your engagement with the game, even though you aren't currently playing. And it's something that you can bring to the table as a a collaboration with your players. Now, most often, it's world creation done by GMs who are really into world creation, but it might also be interesting to, if you have a player who's a great map creator. It might be fun to deputize them to create the cool maps that the rest of you then interact with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was I was a cartography major in college, so making the map was always one of the great fun things that I that I did, uh, and I you know did it both by hand and then I did it with the CAD programs, the primitive AutoCAD that we were uh, learning uh, things on in uh, the palmy misty days of yore, and. Yeah, it's, it, it's a terrific thing. And the, the original wilderness map where you, you know, randomly stat out what's in that hex, what's in that hex, what's the next hex over, uh, the old random dungeon creation stuff in the back of the DM's guide. To my mind, in generally, and I suspect this may be a different, uh, uh, wing of gaming hut or, or something, getting away from at least providing those tools for a GM is, I think it's a bad idea because it not only is it a fun little micro, uh, activity, as you mentioned, I think it also really helps the GM, uh, get comfortable with their setting in a way that not a lot of other activities can. Um, so that is something I certainly did a, a good deal of, uh, back in the day. And even now when I'm running a, a game set in a given game world, if there isn't already a map made of it, uh, I will definitely attempt to map it, uh, as thoroughly as I can, even if the players never see it.
0: Well, on that note, I think we've taken an adequate initial survey of our cartography hut, and in future installments, we will map it down to the last graph square.
1: Indeed. We shall um, uh, have it uh, maybe even 3D rendered, like uh, the kids today with their uh, Skyrims and such.
0: Well, now it's time to open up perhaps the most perilous hut of all, the politics hut. Uh, Ken and I are both avid followers of uh, politics, both in history and in the current day, and both of us into U.S. politics. Now, of course, this will require a disclaimer in which uh, we are not trying to change your mind or anyone's mind. We're just trying to figure out what's going on. And, of course, we both come at this from different angles, Ken being a Republican and I being a Canadian. So uh, with the disclaimers out of the way, I thought we would take a look at the current state of the U.S. election. And uh, Ken, you have a a bit more of a rooting interest in it than I do. What do you see the uh, basic landscape being as we uh, are at the end of September and waiting for the debates to begin?
1: Well, I think the basic landscape is uh, generally the way that most people understand it, that the race is a statistical tie and that the real question is whether or not Obama can uh convert his uh, very real advantages of sort of uh likability and uh, uh, uh personal warmth and etc into a win or whether Romney can convert the traditional advantages of a challenger in a terrible economy and a disintegrating foreign policy into uh a decisive win. neither of them really seems to be able to put the other one away, but it is relatively early, even uh, though it is late September, as we speak, uh, in the campaign season, the uh, conventions went later than they ever have in American history. And so we are just now getting out of those statistical woods. And simultaneously, we have uh, both uh, candidates, basically, as far as I can tell, trying uh, to recreate 2004, in the sense that they're both running sort of base activation elections, as opposed to Attempts to convert the, the the center of the country, which I think uh, gets smaller every election cycle anyway, into uh, fervent supporters. So we're sort of looking again at 2004, where you have a president who is uh, viscerally hated by a good chunk of the country, uh, who is presiding over a weak economy and a dubious foreign policy, but his opponent is... A out of touch plutocratic zillionaire with uh no particular or- oratorical or political gifts, and so it's going to come down to who gets their base out and possibly once again to the uh uh the size of a football field in Ohio, which is what it came down to in two thousand and four now the difference being of course that in two thousand and four there was a uh there were two shooting wars, and unemployment was five percent and now there are uh maybe half a shooting war. And the unemployment is closer to 8.5%. So I'm not exactly sure how that balances out in the classic uh, fair bread and peace model that is pretty much the only valid cephalogical model that anyone has come up with.
0: Well, it's an interesting battle of the models this year, because basically if you look at the fundamentals, both candidates are going to lose. Um, And it's interesting, under a little-known provision of the Constitution, that If both candidates lose, Greg Stafford becomes president and Sandy Sandy Peterson becomes vice president.
1: Well, I mean, certainly there are are many reasons to sort of want uh, do-over. But uh, sadly, that constitutional provision, as you well know, Robin, has only been uh, invoked three times in our history. And I'm not sure that it's going to happen this time.
0: It does seem like a a distant dream. But the the two models are the uh, underlying economics and and war model that you – mentioned before, versus polling data. And the polling actually is, is a, looks like it's a little stronger for Obama at this point than I think you're suggesting, that he's uh, way ahead in a lot of battleground states. And uh, we're, uh, if Romney is to win, he will be the first uh, winning candidate who has ever had a negative approval rating throughout the entire course of the campaign. And the only candidate who has gone this far into the cycle without ever being clearly ahead. And so if you look at the poll results, it will be, or the way that the poll results are being interpreted by those who create models based on polling data on information given to uh, pollsters and then filtered through various competing methodologies, its uh, you would have to bet on an Obama win if you're going to go by uh, economic fundamentals about the unemployment rate and so forth. Historically, that means that uh, Romney would win. Now, for me as a spectator, the possibility of someone overcoming the economic fundamentals makes American politics the interesting thing to follow that I hope it is, because I'm interested in it as a real-life drama of classing personalities. And so the idea that all of the stuff that I follow and am interested in, the contrast between the two candidates during the debates and during the conventions and who they are as people and the decisions they make, under the economic fundamental model, none of that stuff actually matters. The debates don't matter, the conventions cancel out, and it's all about the economic numbers. And I think that what we're going to see actually is the uh, campaign that's a lot more like a parliamentary campaign, as you would get in a system like Canada's, where the personalities of the candidates and their likability factor and how they sort of strike the zeitgeist matter much more strongly than just where the uh, current state of affairs is economically.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, certainly when you look at the polls, uh, you can see that uh, Romney is uh, behind and with one or two exceptions in one or two polls has not had a compelling lead ever. Certainly, uh, the president's uh, reelect numbers have also not cr- crossed 50%, as you alluded to when you said that neither of the candidates is winning uh, at the moment, or rather that they're both losing at the moment. The real question, I guess, is to what extent the polls are significant. Obviously, the art of polling changes continuously, and as fewer and fewer people answer their phone to strangers, you see it becomes much more difficult to gather a poll And when you look at some of these polls with their notion of a democratic turnout model better than 2008, I think you can pretty much ignore anything else that those polls may be telling you. The other thing, however, is that in the swing states, although, again, the president can't get over 50% in most of them, uh, Romney can't get past the president in most of them, which is an interesting uh, data point and means that maybe... A base awakening election is not what is the smart play at this point, even though, again, since I think both candidate campaigns are following the 2004 model, I think that, uh, they're both sort of trying to have that kind of election because they both know how to do it.
0: And it is interesting to look at the swing States because, uh, there are some swing States now where Obama is beginning to open up, uh, leads beyond the margin of error. And, uh, there, uh, that's the effect, of course, of all kinds of early advertising by the Democrats that defined Romney before he had the wherewithal to define himself. Uh, Now, you might argue that he's been defining himself quite well and, and not in his own favor over the last few weeks. But the groundwork for that public image of him that has him doing worse in core swing states than you expect him to be is, I would think, one of the few examples of television advertising working the way that it used to.
1: Yeah, I think that that's going to be one of the other, you know, sort of unknowables in this cycle is to what extent is Romney's late money advantage going to uh, help and to what extent is the narrative uh, pre-locked in about, I mean, obviously he is a stiff, that's just absolutely true, and obviously he is a ridiculously uh, cartoonish plutocrat, which is also true. I mean, you can't really run away from that, uh, but the fact that Romney is going to have, I think, something like a 50% money advantage in the last uh, two months of the campaign here, or actually the last month and a bit of the campaign here. At some point, one wonders if that is going to be, uh if that's going to be uh at all capable of moving the needle, or if everyone has basically sort of pre-selected their brand of soda, and it doesn't matter uh what the ads are, because again, in this magical new universe of TiVo and uh, lesser DVRs, and time shifting in general, people aren't as uh, capable of being um, uh, swayed by political ads on television just because they're not seeing them. And I think that the general collapse of the American advertising industry in terms of not really knowing how to advertise to the digital uh, consumer is perhaps echoing uh, again through this uh, through this election cycle.
0: I read an interesting statement about the degree to which. Uh, Liberals and conservatives use social media and that, uh, according to frustrated uh, Republicans, that their base does not use viral media to spread political messages the way that uh, liberals do. And I don't know why that would be if it's just a demographic reflection of the fact that uh, conservatives tend to be older than liberals or their sense of uh, general Cultural disengagement, uh, but that does sort of uh, speak to something that the red team will have to overcome in the future if they're going to survive in a post-conventional advertising world.
1: Yeah, the, uh, the there is a great deal of good that could be accomplished. I, I, I believe you and I have talked previously about uh, the uh, what the role-playing game industry needed in the uh, earlier part of the century was a series of unexplainable unexplainable fires in distributors' warehouses across this great land. But I think that uh, perhaps a series of inexplicable plain disappearances would do wonders for the Republican Party if it uh, cleared out the current batch of people whose um, uh, media instincts were all being formed uh back when uh, uh am radio was the cutting edge technology for reaching the voter and direct mail yes and direct mail oh god yes uh the 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 empire that uh, richard vigory started uh to get ronald reagan elected in 76 and 80 is still uh has its dread hand upon us even this very day i mean obviously uh certainly the obama campaign d- does plenty of direct mail and they do plenty of uh old school uh, outreach but you know, when you compare even the effect of uh, George Soros on the, uh, on the uh, liberal inform- informational sphere to the relative absence of interest by the, the Republican zillionaires of uh, funding anything like that sort of networked degree of uh, social media backbench, uh, it, uh, it, it brings tears to one's eyes if one is a partisan. But when one has been a partisan of the Chicago White Sox, one is used to having tears in one's eyes as one watches the contest.
0: So n- n- not to increase the flood of partisan tears, but you mentioned Romney as an obviously cartoonish plutocrat. Now, this was a primary field notable for its general cartoonishness. To what do you attribute that uh, surprising lack of a, a strong bench in what should have been a, a strong uh, year for a Republican walkover?
1: I think the, the, big, the biggest problem, obviously, is that Jeb Bush's last name was Bush uh in In a year when Jeb bush had been jeb snodgrass we 'd be looking at a uh you know a five point advantage right now in the polls and it would be you telling me about um uh, uh voter uh selection screens but I think that that he was our our obviously strongest gubernatorial candidate there was a uh mitch daniels i think would also have been a strong candidate, but he had you know sort of a specific uh concern his his wife had uh sort of um, left their marriage and then come back to it in circumstances that obviously would have become, you know, uh, catnip to the media for months and months and months and months and months, and, months, and he didn't want to go through that nonsense. Uh, I think the other strong looking contenders, people like Chris Christie, uh, recognized that, I mean, Christie recognized he was a first term governor in a state that uh, at that point was not a particularly reliable political base for campaigning. Uh, I, th- I think that you know, Christie was playing the odds and said, well, if, uh, if the Republicans win in 2012 or uh, then I will obviously be in a really good position nationally if I help the guy who wins. And if not, then I'm the obvious golden boy for 2016. So I think you saw a lot of, uh, Republicans who are, you know, at that point in their cycle, looking, uh, for any number of local reasons at 2016 is a better year for them, assuming that 2012 didn't go well. And, again like i say uh the, the the general effectlessness of of the bush administration uh certainly as a domestic political operation uh sort of uh managed to poison a great many uh hopes uh in the republican primary field i don't know why bobby jindal didn't get in because i think he would have been uh at least as credible a candidate as Rick Santorum, for God's sake. And he, as an actual governor, he would have been qualified for the job he was running for.
0: Well, you still have a gerrymandering, uh, at the House level to, uh, fall back on.
1: Well, we have gerrymandering in the fact that we reliably win 55% of the House, uh, vote. So between the two of those, I think that we're, 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 we're a lock in the House. Um, and then the Senate, uh, of course, is always dependent on the kinds of people who want to be senators, which, like I need to tell you, is, uh, somewhat like depending on, um, <laughs> well, it's like, it's like depending on people who want to be senators for anything. So
0: Yes. Uh, well, on that note, I think we should uh, close up the politics hut. We may uh, reopen it after the election to see to what extent the things we just said were utter foolishness. Uh, and until then, it's time to move on to our next segment.
1: Time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and so let's ask Ken and Robin. Monica Valentinelli asks Ken and Robin: Can comedy and Lovecraft coexist? Robin, do you want to start answering?
0: Well, I think certainly there's there's an issue. First of all, in that the cutification of Lovecraft is now at we're at uh, peak plush Cthulhu, as it were, and you have this phenomenon where uh, the Things that are supposed to be terrifying in Lovecraft have been fanishly beloved for so long in so many ways that it becomes a challenge in a way to take the comedy out of Lovecraft, especially in a gaming context where people have the urge to break their fear with comedy relief. And so as a uh, keeper or as a designer of uh, Call or Trail of Cthulhu Adventures, you have to sort of look at a way actually to remove the humor from role-playing. But certainly uh, Lovecraft himself, uh, humor coexists within Lovecraft, that certain things that he wrote, like uh, Herbert West, are clearly parodic in nature where he's uh, sending himself up. Other things are claimed by scholars such as S.T. Yoshi to be parodic when I don't think they are at all. They just disagree with his overarching thesis of what the theme of every Lovecraft story should be. But certainly, uh, the push and pull between the emotional release of comedy and the tight grind of terror is a tool that you can use either while writing Lovecraftian fiction or running Lovecraftian games.
1: Yeah, I think if you look uh, at a story like uh, The Mountains of Madness, which is, of course, a uh, narrative of stark techno-thriller terror. It is also, when you step back, an exercise in black humor of the bleakest uh, cosmic horror kind, where not only do you have the humans vivisecting the elder things, but then the elder things vivisecting the humans, while simultaneously they're both uh, being stalked by the Shoggoths. The Shoggoths themselves being a black uh, humorous joke uh, of, the, of the sort uh, that it uh, the the equivalent being that if you uh, had been reading uh, the monster manual and suddenly turned and came face to face with a neo atyug or something the the notion that the uh that the, the this uh, mad narrative is becoming uh, reified here in the antarctic and then the final bit where the uh notion that humanity is created more as an afterthought or even as a sort of a jape, like we'd graft a human ear onto the back of a mouse in a genetic lab, uh, is another one of Lovecraft's, uh, little, uh, or rather enormous pieces of, uh, of cosmic humor in that story. And if you start looking for humor that is explicitly cruel and hateful, I think you go a lot closer to being able to build that into a, um, uh, a Cthulhu adventure. I know, for example, that, uh, uh, and I think that without giving too much away, uh, when you have an adventure called the rending box and players are playing in the rending box by the lovely and talented Graham Walsley, that uh, much of the uh, innate joke of the setting is that you've given a box to a bunch of uh, role-playing game players, but it's called the rending box. So you can certainly uh, imagine the hilarity that ensues even without knowing what the box is or what it does. Because it runs, for God's sake!
0: Right, because in general the comedy equivalent or the the, the comedy counterpart of uh, existentialism is absurdism, and that although Lovecraft himself I think was uh, skeptical of uh, existentialism to the extent that it quite existed when he was uh, writing, certainly his view of Humanity and and its relationship to the universe from which his horror springs is one of the indifference and randomness of the universe. And the absurdist comic tradition, as seen in Samuel Beckett or Eugene Ionesco, mirrors that philosophy of indifference. So, you know, Waiting for Godot is the ultimate comedy of cosmic indifference. And so if you take the things that are Uh, apparently funny in what it is that you're doing and then find a way to graft that level of philosophical awfulness onto it to create that, you know, the knife within the smile, then I think you've got the point where comedy and the Lovecraftian vision fruitfully intersect rather than just something that sends it up.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously there's plenty of of parodies of Lovecraft or or humorous uh, takes on Lovecraft and some of them work, uh, tremendously well, like, uh, Peter Cannon's Scream for Jeeves, and some of them don't work particularly well at all. But the, uh, the, the, the question being, uh, how, I suppose, does one get the best of both worlds, uh, out of, uh, out of it in the, in the play sphere is a little tougher because when one is pulling an absurdist prank of that sort, one is pulling it on the player characters who traditionally uh, even in a Call of Cthulhu game, don't always appreciate uh, being made the butt of jokes. Uh, that actually seems to hurt them more than simply killing the character in a, a, a appropriately dramatic uh, a protoplasm swipe or something. Uh, so there is, I suppose, a degree of interpersonal breaks that get applied because the last thing you want to do is actually introduce your friends to an existential drama in which they are... Uh, belittled and proved to be not just nothing but a hilariously insignificant nothing. So I think that that becomes a little trickier to do in the tabletop space as opposed to the fictional space where you have a degree of distancing from it uh, and can uh, sort of uh, you're, you're, it's after all not happening to you, it's happening to some protagonist.
0: And that sort of brings us to the pulp purist distinction that you made in Trail of Cthulhu where there are two different modes of play, the purist mode, which does try to explore existential indifference of the universe, and the purist mode in which you are having a fun adventure in the fabulously detailed horror world initially laid out by H.P. Lovecraft and then elaborated by many other authors.
1: Yeah, although obviously one can have uh, humor in in Robert E. Howard or in Robert Bloch. Famously, Robert Block is uh, a humorous horrorist. Uh, And to a degree, degree, there's a degree of dark humor in Fritz Leiber, who is another uh, author that you could adduce as a contributor to the pulp uh, feel of of Lovecraft. Um, uh, Fawford and Gray Mouser, which are uh, famously humorous in tone, began, after all, as uh, Cthulhu mythos stories. And Lovecraft told Liber to take the mythos out because it wasn't working the way that Liber thought it was. And Liber did so. So you can... I, I think that certainly the more absurdist existential humor works well in in the purest uh, mode if you can make it happen. And I think that the more sort of uh, um, the gallows humor, laughing in the face of death type... Uh, you know, John McClane humor works really well in uh, pulp, and they both have their their place. And I think keeping comedy out of the table over any long period of time—I mean, you should be able to do it for for, for the climax of a scene or for uh, a, a scene with a particularly heavy dramatic co- uh, component—but keeping out of the table for four hours is just unnatural because laughter is a natural human response to fear and. Trying to get people to ignore that is—it's a losing battle and, and should not be fought. And I guess the trick is to pace your tension and release the way that uh, you know John Carpenter does in Aliens, or that um, uh, James Cameron does in Aliens, or John Carpenter does in uh, any of the slasher movies.
0: And certainly, there is no dishonor in creating things that, in the fanish way, combine uh, Lovecraft with uh, another property to humorous effect. For example your line of Lovecraftian children's stories that you published through Atlas
1: Games. Yes, uh, to uh, pick an example uh, at complete random. I think that those uh, work fairly well, and the, the goal with those is threefold. First of all, it's to sort of uh, pro- provide a uh, maybe an insight into the Lovecraftian universe that is not uh, normally you know, the way that we approach it. But when you look at a narrative like, um, uh, the shadow over Innsmouth or the Dunwich horror, you can look at it in that sort of innocent way. What, um, uh, what Lovecraft says in, in call of Cthulhu, the theosophist mask behind bland optimism. I th- I think that the childrenification of Cthulhu, if done correctly, which I certainly hope I did can be read still as effective horror and ideally only by the parents. And that the kids merely have, you know, the delightful drawings by Andy Hopp and Christina Rodriguez, and they have my um, uh, version of the sort of the the pros and the rhythms of uh, Bridwell or uh, Sendak, uh, and so there is a, there's a degree of of the obvious surface parody, but I think that within it, both uh, you know, all of my uh, children's books for uh, Atlas have examined that sort of notion that. In a Lovecraftian world, everything should be, uh, Lovecraftian and, and cosmically bleak, and that, you know, obviously includes, uh, children's books. And so that has been sort of the, the challenge that's the actual design challenge of those is to find the cosmic horror aspect of what seems like a relatively innocuous uh, narrative and then bring them together so that the parody, as opposed to simply being, you know, Uh, a bit of good fun because it's uh, the deep ones and wild things have the same metrical uh, component. They also have a lot of the same narrative component and bringing those into relief, I think makes the parody more than uh, simply a a barnacle hanging on the edge of those works, but sort of illuminates both of them uh, when it's done right anyway.
0: And for the benefit of those who wish to eldritchify the young ones in
1: their lives, those titles are Uh, the titles are uh, where the deep ones are, which combines uh, Shadows of Innsmouth with uh, Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak, Uh, The Antarctic Express, which is my Lovecraftian take on The Polar Express, and Clifford the Big Red God, which is the Dunwich Horror meets uh, Nelson Bridwell's beloved uh, giant red dog. And are there um, more in the works? Well, for that, uh, the interested listener is encouraged to send plaintive emails, tweets, and uh, Facebook postings to John Nephew, the canny and parsimonious publisher of Atlas Games.
0: Well, now that we have uh, turned our discourse into pluggery, it is time to exit the Ask Ken and Robin area and enter our final segment for the podcast. final segment being another exciting installment of Ken's Time Machine. Long-time listeners will, of course, know this is where Time Incorporated contacts Ken, asks him to get in his chronological travel vehicle, and head back in time to avert some catastrophe of our timeline. And in this case, uh, this is an assignment that I'm sure will be near and dear to your heart, Ken, as you often use alcoholic beverages to inveigle the past figures that you encounter during your chrono- Missions. Uh, you have now been asked on the grounds that it spread uh, gangsterism and general uh, disorder through the land to avert prohibition. Uh, so, what are your first steps in accomplishing this mission when you step out of your time machine?
1: Well, as um, first of all, when I uh, heard about this assignment from my uh, my uh, cohorts at Time Incorporated, I suspected myself of being. Uh, the victim of the sort of thing where you have a character in your game who enjoys playing the elven archer and is then immediately put into a dungeon with passages too narrow to draw and pull a bow. Uh, The notion of attempting to convince America's temperance enthusiasts to uh, stop prohibition by means of getting them drunk uh, has a similar uh, feel to it. That said, as I have said uh, on many an occasion, Whenever you have a historical problem, uh first uh kill Hitler and then uh kill Woodrow Wilson, and one of those two will fix it, uh nine times out of ten. And in this case, once again, it would, given that the uh proximate cause of Prohibition's passage was World War One, which simultaneously marginalized one of the loudest and most politically active communities uh of wets in America, the German American community, who in uh keeping with the German stereotypes of the time, or a bunch of happy-go-lucky layabout drunkards, and therefore um, uh, very eager to prevent any sort of uh, prohibition from coming in. Uh, it, for example, Chicago's first ever riot was uh, held by Germans who objected to a local prohibition ordinance, and that was back in the 1850s. Uh, so World War I marginalized German-Americans as a political force, thanks to uh, Wilson's heavy-handed uh, uh, thumb on the public press. And also, it showed the world that uh, the uh, people coming up out of America's hinterlands were remarkably unfit for military service, being generally suffering from vitamin deficiencies and uh, uh, unhealthy pallor and other uh, non-military qualities, which the prohibition movement immediately uh, leaped upon as example of the deleterious effects of drinking moonshine and whiskey Uh, ...made back in the cricks and or hollers of this great land... ...when in fact, of course, it was the uh, result of rickets and pellagra... uh, ...because of uh, ongoing agricultural collapse after the Civil War. But that uh, provided the immediate propaganda uh, boost needed... ...to get a two-thirds majority of Congress uh, on a prohibition ticket... ...in the elections in uh, uh, 1916... and i th- i think by 1917 they had uh the necessary uh, votes uh to pass it in the house there were a awful lot of you know back and forth and attempts to to uh stall it but the 18th amendment did pass the congress it got ratified almost immediately which argues that it is a national uh movement of sweeping national character and even If you look at it uh, at the time, it was a remarkable political uh, coalition uh, melding the progressive left, uh, the Christian right, um, uh, African-Americans, the Ku Klux Klan. Both were in favor of prohibition because of uh, their belief in the uh, poisonous effects of alcohol on the race. Uh, And it, it really was as broadly popular as anything ever has been in uh, the United States uh, uh, in that kind of level. I do pause to note the quaintness of a uh, political system in which you actually had to pass a constitutional amendment to outlaw something. (laughs) That, uh, if if when I have my time machine on my regular two weeks of vacation that I get from Time Incorporated, I may try and get a little of that back. But uh, the prohibition movement, like I've said, it's a very big... Uh, social uh, uh, movement in the United States. It goes back to the 1830s and 1840s as a response basically to the um, uh, re Christianization of America in the earlier part of the, of the 19th century, what they call the Second Great Awakening. Uh, and a similar effect happened with the uh, introduction of a more evangelical sort of uh, Lutheranism in Scandinavia, which is why a lot of those countries uh, went into, uh, engaged in prohibition at the same time that we did. Um, and I believe even your beloved Ontario uh, engaged in prohibition at right around that same time, although it did not prohibit them from manufacturing alcohol to be sold in America because you're not idiots.
0: Well, as as is our want, it was a, a somewhat milder, more sensible version of an unsensible thing.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, the notion of going back and changing, you know, America such that there is no prohibition is a bigger job. Uh, than simply uh, diverting the 18th Amendment, which I think can be done by, again, you know, getting rid of Woodrow Wilson. And, but if every single episode of Ken's Time Machine uh, results in that, one will begin to think that I have an unhealthy monomania on the topic, <laughs> as opposed to a uh, a cogent, clear-eyed view of historical contingency. Uh, Hendrik w- Willem van Loon, who is a beloved uh, popularizer of uh, American and world history, Had the charming notion that if you simply prevented the Dutch from uh, losing New York to the British in uh, 1667, that you would uh, be able to have uh, New York stay uh, wet and the sight of New Yorkers enjoying themselves would inspire America to end prohibition or perhaps even uh, never have it at all. But I believe that uh, Mr. Van Loon uh, is uh, fooled by his own charming demeanor and sensible attitudes into believing that Americans seeing New Yorkers having fun has ever made us want to make things more like that. <laughs> so I, I think that the uh, the the sad truth is that prohibition is one of those things that if you're actually going to completely uh, end it in America, you either have to go back to something like the whiskey rebellion, whereby you simply remove the federal government's ability to impose any sort of controls on the production of alcohol, or you're going to have to split America up into enough component pieces that the uh, the, the dries stay dry and the wets stay wet. Now, of course, that was the goal of um, uh, Hamilton and Madison uh, to begin with when they allowed that such matters would be state-controlled questions. And indeed, in the run-up to the 18th Amendment, plenty of states had gone dry. And if we simply could have kept that regime going, uh, I think that really everyone would have had the exact prohibition regime they deserved. But again, as I mentioned, the progressives got it into their heads that prohibition would be a dandy way to engage in the betterment of all uh, those people. Uh, And uh, it was also a a devil's bargain that got us the income tax because the progressives obviously wanted the income tax to pay for the rest of their ridiculous schemes. And the prohibitionists wanted the government to have a source of income that was not taxing alcohol. up until 1912, the biggest source of income for the federal government was the federal excise tax on alcohol. And obviously, if you had prohibition, you would pretty much be taking the entire federal government's finances offline, which again, in those uh, charming days of yesteryear, was seen as a bad thing. And so, therefore, they had to sort of make that bargain with the uh, progressives so that they could uh, have the income tax that would clear the ground for prohibition to work.
0: Well, and this shows us that one should never be more suspicious of progressivism as when it is teaming up with uh,
1: the forces of uh, traditional morality. The general notion is that there are sort of four strains of, of broad thought in America, and if three of them agree on something, it's probably a good day to start um, uh, locking your door and, uh, and and looking both ways before you cross the street. Time to stockpile canned goods. Exactly. That's when the excitement gets crazy. So, the, um, prohibition obviously united the, um, uh, the, the sort of the Yankee Puritans. It united the, um, uh, the, the, the great, uh, Midwestern, uh, communitarian, can't we all just get along for the betterment of everyone, uh, type approach. And it got just enough of the, uh, pirates and, uh, gunfighters in the other, uh, uh, two quarters of America that we got uh this uh, magical opportunity for ourselves, diverting the whole prohibitionist movement is is going to take a great deal of work and is going to probably involve just a long series of well i guess of of alcoholic parties in various uh border uh, border constituencies such that you prevent the eighteenth amendment from getting uh, ratified at the state level i 'm not immediately familiar enough with uh, where the the sort of the swing state was but I will uh be willing to bet that uh, a, a modicum of work uh at uh making say you know probably Ohio or Pennsylvania just a little more attractive to uh drunken uh Irish and uh German immigrants uh and keeping the sort of more harsh-minded uh, Welsh and such out of it for long enough that might do it but that would be a very very long and an involved campaign, uh, and I'm not sure Time Incorporated uh, has the budget for that as opposed to just uh, going and knocking uh, Woodrow Wilson over the head and seeing if that doesn't fix it after all.
0: And if you do wind up uh, stopping World War One from happening in order to prevent prohibition from happening, that has the uh, side effect... Uh, well, it possibly has the usual side effect of alternate history of, of somehow enabling
1: dirigible transport. Oh, yeah, dirigible transport is um uh, is definitely on the books with the World War One thing. Uh,
0: the other follow-on effect from that, though, is that it uh gives America back its taste for uh, Rieslings and other sweet German wines.
1: Yes, uh, that is is not just America; also Britain um uh, gets its taste for Rieslings because, of course, everyone in uh, the uh, uh, Edwardian literature that you and I both love is always drinking a uh, for lunch, and that's basically just a German white. And combination of patriotism and the fact that uh, all the best vineyards in the Moselle Valley are being plowed under by trench warfare really is a knock on the head for Rieslings and sweet whites in general. And any uh, geopolitical outcome short of global communism that en- encourages the Uh, increased production and consumption of Riesling can only be seen as a benison. Well,
0: if we get Riesling and dirichables, perhaps Time Incorporated will find the additional funding to send you on this mission.
1: Or, once again, they can um, uh, send me on the mission. I can, uh, uh, as always, uh, divert Woodrow Wilson in some fashion and pocket the difference uh, to be used for future inveiglements. Uh, Well,
0: on that inveigling note, I guess it's time for both of us to get in our time machines and travel through them back to our writing desks. So uh, that is once again Ken's time machine. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors, Dork
1: Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website where you can leave Hosannas and haikus at Ken and Robin Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, I'm at Kenneth Height. And I'm at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.